0: Hi, my name's Darshan, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict for what it's worth, Uh, and I have been clean and sober since uh, June 16th, 1977, and uh, I reside now in in northwest Arkansas in the Ozark Mountains, and uh, really glad to be with you here tonight, Uh, very honored. Uh, I have an old friend, uh, who used to work for me back in the 70s, and uh, quite a good guy. <laughs> I got to see him in his pre-days, and then uh, then uh, he went down on his own. Anyway, uh, we had the joy of getting back together here in uh past 10 years or so, and, and uh, it's been great, but th- we spent our first meeting together in a Zoom meeting not that long ago, and it just ended up by coincidence that I'm here with you tonight, but I'm very honored to be here, and so I'm gonna share my story. Uh, You know, when I was a little kid, my first introduction to alcohol was, uh, I was maybe four or five years old, and I, I think I had diarrhea or constipation, I'm not sure what, but my grandfather jumped in to save the day, and said, "Here, give him a shot of blackberry brandy." And so they gave me a shot of blackberry brandy. And then he wasn't sure if that would work, so they gave me another shot of blackberry brandy. And so I think it was, you know, two and a half feet tall. But I can remember, you know, fogging out or whatever. But it really set a, a good principle inside me, which is the, you know, the medical need for alcohol. You know, <laughs> the the treatment value of that. Um, you know, I was really a odd, weird child. I just strange things. I, I came from a, a crazy family. Um, you know, had our share of the the abuses, uh, violence, sex, uh, abandonment, all all the usual junk. Um, but I was also a crippled kid, which was really weird. I, I I hated that. My dad was military. We'd move from town to town, uh, you know, with the military bases. And I was always the new, weird kid in the class. And I hated that to go to school and be odd. And uh, man, it was awful. And uh, I, I kept, you know, uh, isolating and withdrawing more and more all the time. Um, by the time i i got to near high school i, I was pretty well crazy and i had alcohol really a, in the first time where i really you know got a good we were at a family reunion and my uncle uh who was an alcoholic uncle had this gallon of wine and i went and took this big slug out of his wine i was real pleased with myself and he hit me in the back of the head so hard you know just slapped me hard i couldn't believe he hit me that hard for taking a drink of that wine but he was alcoholic you know what can I say but in any case uh before the evening was out they were all sitting in chairs around the campfire and he had his wine down underneath his chair and I snuck in from behind the chair and poured me a coffee cup out of his jug and snuck back out just you know that thing about authority that that you know we can't stand and whatever and I remember drinking that and feeling good but uh then it was another three years or so till my 15th birthday. Uh, the guys stole a pint of tequila and they brought this uh tequila over to this little uh, camper trailer that we we're spending the night in. There's about four or five of us sitting there and they're going to pass it around. And I got the first tip. Well, it hit me that already what hit me is there's not going to be enough for all of us. So I started chugging that thing and I was chugging, chugging, down it went, whatever, and they're grabbing at me, but, I got enough and man, let me tell you, I got drunk and oh, was I drunk Uh, and I remember spreading my arms and legs out on the lawn to keep from rolling away, you know, because my vertigo was so bad. I, I had to hang on to like the face of the earth and oh, was I drunk and next day, dry heaves and just awful. But there was this moment, there was this moment after I chugged it where for about 20, 30 minutes where I was good. Uh, it was the first time in my life where I felt good enough and I, I'm equal to anybody. I was not afraid of guys. I was not afraid of girls. I felt good. And man, that's that was one thing. I don't care what it takes to get that. I wanted that. Uh, later on, you know, I, I've often shared about that that moment of, of clarity there. And I was trying to, in so many ways, I've tried to put it into words. But a man put it into words best for me. What he said was, in that moment where I first got drunk there, I got the promises. And that was it. Just like you read out of the big book. Go to 83. That's how I was with my first drunk. Yes! This is it. This is the real deal. This is where I'm at. And I did never want to leave that. And immediately, oh, my gosh, I, I was drinking a lot immediately. Those were the days of the Vietnam War and stuff. And you could use a a draft card for an ID. They had just invented a thing called Xerox. So I managed to make a phony ID off my brother's uh, uh, draft card so I could start drinking. And I drank pretty much uh, continuously there. I mean, problems started right away. Um, You know, I I, I was 16 and dropped out of school, Uh, just, bouncing around. I remember uh, I parted from God. I mean, among other things, my family was full of religious fanaticism. It was crazy. It's like you could do anything, but you just, you had to have the religion so you could be forgiven on a weekly basis for anything you did, you know, and that's kind of how it played out. But one time I was, I was 16, I was being transferred from a, a jail in Garden City, Kansas, uh, back to a juvenile hall where I was to be held in Colorado Springs, and my family, in their wisdom, sent a vicar of the church to save my sorry soul, and uh, so they're riding along, and we're going along in this station wagon, and, you know, he, he starts to talk to me about giving my soul to God or whatever, and oh my God, I can't believe this crap, so I immediately just railed on him, I just blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I F Jesus, F the Holy Ghost, F God, you know, and just blasting, and man, he was trying to crawl out the other side of the car, he just sure that, you know, man, the rage of heaven's going to come down on us, well, you know, nothing happened, and I got to tell you, you know, two things ran through my head, the first was, you know, I knew it, I knew that that, all that religious stuff was crap. I knew that, you know, them saying, if you ever blaspheme the Holy Ghost, be like King Herod, the maggots would come out of your eyes and all this other stuff. I knew it was crap. That was one thing. The other thing, and this is really funny, but I just remembered this later. It was very subtle. But what the other thing was, was a sense of sadness that there really was nothing there that there was no God, no higher power. What your share is your share, you know, and whatever. That's as good as it gets. And man, I did not look back. I went forward from there. And, and, uh, you know, I went on by the, before I was out of my teens, I was uh, really drinking a lot. I started, uh, went from Colorado to California. Uh, There was a time in my teens where I was uh, in San Francisco. I was in in uh, hate Ashbury district and this is 69 or so I think it was 19 but i was I was uh prostituting myself for drugs and you know places to stay and to drink and uh you know I didn't have a lot of self value and stuff but i would I would do that i was uh, like a cycle drinker. I didn't know what, how else to describe it, because it was like I would go for like six or eight or nine months and manage to keep it together and do pretty good, and, and then I would just crash and burn, and it was like one thing after another, and I couldn't pull out of it every time, uh, but then when I finally did get out of jail or whatever, I could find my feet again. I started working construction when I was 16. I started driving dump trucks, and uh started working in, in, uh, you know, sand and gravel, uh, and, and excavating, driving, uh, heavy equipment and stuff. And, uh, construction was the right career for me. Uh, as opposed to these days where the construction guys are the only ones they are testing for drinking and drugs, as far as careers go in those days, it was the only one you were totally safe in, uh, because you could go through, uh, you will know, flunk out, get fired, be chased off or whatever, and go right down the road and get something more to go to work. Um, I went on and uh, I got married and uh, that was a disaster. Uh, you know, I, I married a girl who drank uh, not far off from what I did. And, uh, you know, we ended up getting this ugly divorce. Uh, it was a crappy marriage. I was a terrible husband. I would get drunk and not come home for a long time. She would uh, find some guy who's going to save her. They'd go off having an affair, be gone. And then, you know, we'd try and piece the thing back together. But it was ugly, whatever. We ended up, uh, she threw me away and moved on. And uh, I uh, was bouncing around. I, I had kind of gone up and, and down um, in... It was a while. I mean, I got some money going. I got busted for uh, drinking and drugs in in 1974. I got in a lot of trouble. Uh, So, you know, I had planned on leaving the United States because I knew a family in Brazil. I knew if you went to stay with a rich family, you were above the law. And that's what I wanted to get to was go down to Brazil. I could be okay down there. And Uh, What happened is before I got to go, I ended up getting busted and getting in trouble. I couldn't believe it, you know, it just, they, they nailed me down to the country. Couldn't leave it. So I had to go on uh, probation and everything. And, and I did really good It was when I was trying to do good and they there, hanging over my head, I actually got a good job. I, I moved up the food chain. Uh, there was a while I bought a 59 Corvette. I got enough money together and, and uh, was looking pretty good. And my probation officer, Went with me before the judge and boy, I I don't know how many will identify with this. Anyways, I was in my sport coat looking good and the probation officer told the judge how good I was doing. So he wrote off all the stuff that was over my head and released me from probation. And you guys know what happened about four or five days later, same thing, wham, I went right down because I immediately went to celebrating. And uh, I remember when the cops were chasing me. And I wondered always why the cops go back and forth behind you. You look in your rear mirror and they're going back and forth behind you like this. What are they going to do? Which side are they going to pass on? What's going on? And it wasn't until many years later that I realized that it was me driving like this that made it look that way. Uh, But anyways, they did. They pulled me over and I had stuffed this Kia uh, dope under my seat. And it was a stupid van that had these wheel wells, rounded wheel wells right underneath the seat. And I'd stuffed it up underneath there and stuffed it, fell down, stuffed it, fell down, stuffed it, and I finally wedged it in there just as the cop walks up to my door and I'm, oh, I'm sorry, you've been drinking. Ah, oh, yes, sir, I have. I'm sorry. You know, just whatever. And I'm trying to stand on the van. And he said, oh, you know, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. Well, I understand, sir. And then all of a sudden, kabloom, that stupid he dope slides down and he goes, well, what have we here? Oh, and those two guys, they, they hauled me away. And, uh, man, that was, that was kind of my downfall. That was, uh, there was nowhere to go. Um, I sat there and, uh, you know, tried to put things together and I just wasn't doing it anymore. And I finally, uh, hit my bottom, you know, I didn't have any relationships left. I, I remember, uh, you know, my, my ex had taken off with somebody else, and it pretty much, uh, I didn't have anybody or anything. And uh, I got my 12-step call one day in, in 1975. Uh, a, a friend of mine came over, and he had a six-pack of tall boys under his arm. And uh, he was, uh, you know, says, you know, hey, you'll never guess where I was last night. And so he was sharing his beer, tall boys were 16 ounce beers. So, you know, as long as he had beers, I was willing to guess, you know, and I said, well, uh, in jail, no, no. Where? In your mother's basement? No. You know, and, and I'm guessing church? No. And finally, you know, he said, I was in AA and I said, what's that? And he said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, what's that? And he proceeded to tell me that's a place where people go to get help with their drinking. That was amazing. Uh, so I, I, queried him about it and he was getting drunker and drunker. And finally he said, well, Hey, I, my name John, I'm alcohol and he passed out. That was, that was my 12 step call. Uh, a couple weeks later, uh, when I, I had a, uh, a, a moment where I just ran into everything that I could ever run into and, uh, you know, my little sister, I was in a bar, I started some fights in there, and the bartender, who was her fiance, jumps over the bar with a nightstick, and I started calling him a coward, and, you know, bring your stick to a fight, boy, you're a real man, I'm your, going to be your brother, and, you know, and I just bad-mouthing him, and he's going crazy, and my sister's trying to get in between us, and finally she turns around and yells at me, get out of my life, I don't want you for my brother anymore, and just get out, and, you know, I left, but I couldn't, I couldn't let loose of that because that was the one innocent. That was the one who had stuck with me through everything, through all the detention homes and jails and dropping out of school and all that. She had always had my back. And that was when I couldn't write off. And I finally came to AA then because I didn't have any value left for me. I didn't, you know, I wasn't afraid of cops. I wasn't afraid of what they were doing. I just didn't want to hurt anybody anymore. You know, if I wasn't going to have anything, why hurt people? And that's why I came to AA. That was May 5th of 1975. Well, I met a bunch of NAs from uh, Houston at the conference, uh, 1975 International Conference in Denver. And they shamed me because I was loaded and whatever. So I took all my dope and threw it away. Uh, Finally, I had actually thrown it away when I first came into AA, but I never took the trash out. And when it got real bad, I'd go pinch out of the bottom of the trash. But when I threw everything away, I went about 13 months till I went and did a line of Coke. And I thought I could get away with it. The amazing thing was I didn't get a buzz. I I just wanted 20 minutes, just okay. There was no okay, not a bit. I didn't know that, that that wonderful time I had spent with AAs was not duplicable with drugs that connection. And the minute I took that drugs, that connection was gone and it didn't come back. And I tried to quit and come back to AA and tried and tried. And when I went five months, I ended up uh, huffing lacquer thinner and, you know, just totally didn't know my name, didn't know what was going on, but I couldn't get free of that stuff. And the thing that saved my life was AA because it was time to drink again. And I was going across country and, uh, I had stopped at my brother's place and I got some change together and I was just going to go get some tequila. That was it. And, uh, anyway, but while I was piecing that money together, it just came, I had a, a spiritual experience. My spiritual experience was, was, uh, getting ready to take another hit off this bowl of dope, uh, and just go get drunk. And as I got close, it's, what, what runs in my head is, who's your favorite football team? This is this is it, yeah. And I went, well, Oakland Raiders. Why is that? And I thought, it's because this, they never, ever give up. And I then what came to me is, have you done everything you can? And what I realized is no, you know, I hadn't. So I just, no, I just made that decision that I was not going to take a drink by my own hand. I put the chain away. I pushed the pipe away. I didn't take that hit, but that was it. And, you know, I did not have what it takes to quit. I did not have what it takes to quit. I knew that in that moment. I was doing an impossible thing. But what happened is that spark came back alive. I felt that, that thing that came from having my back covered. And that was uh, June sixteenth, 1977. Um, you know, I started off, my first meeting was there. That was East Momently Lean, Illinois. My second one was, uh, you know, across a AA potluck. And I was just standing there shaking in line. And so time Rock comes up behind me and he goes, oh, how's that? And he goes, sit still and hurt. And, and I thought, oh, God, you ass. You know, I just couldn't believe it. I just, what am I doing here? I just need to get out of here. This is crazy. I stu- shouldn't be with these stupid people. And I got ready to leave. And he said, that's right. Don't back up. Sit still and hurt. And when he said, don't back up, that nailed me. Because, man, I was a crayfish. I'm one of those guys who badass, you know, while, while I back away, you know, act all tough and out the door. And he called me when he said, don't back up. Sit still and hurt. I knew he had my, my mail. So I didn't, I, I stuck it out. And, uh, you know, I found the traction, you know, over the years, uh, you know, I, th- I think I've only got just a few minutes. Isn't that correct? Uh, somebody let me know, but anyway, no, uh, you're doing good. Okay. So what happened is over the years, I mean, I've gone through a lot of stuff. I've, I've been in a lot of different, uh, Twelve-step programs, you know, AA and NA to start. AA can cover everything, but all, you know, sometimes I needed to join some of those others. Uh, SAA included, Sex Addicts Anonymous. Uh, I had to face a drug charge—I mean, a sex charge—and and do all these things just in in the process of coming clean, making amends, and straightening out my life. So I paid some heavy dues to do it, but I got to tell you that my life gets better every day. Um, I met a great girl, uh, I married her. She's awesome, she's my wife today. We've been married uh, 39 years, it'd be 40 years shortly. But, uh, you know, she sticks with me like glue. She has my back, I'm crazy about her. She works out at the gym to try and stay, keep herself good looking, and, and I, I get up at 4.20 in the morning to make her a cup of coffee because <laughs> she's still working, she's a postmaster. Anyway, but uh, I have good relationships today. I have incredible friends. Over the years, things have gotten better and better. Um, And you know, I learned somewhere along the line that I have to give it 100%. There's no BS works for me. I can't sell out. I can't hold that little lie. I can't leave some truth unsaid that might help somebody else. And you know, I mean, I'd like to skip some of the uglies of my story and just keep talking about Corvettes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, the other parts are, are, are the parts that people need to hear. Uh, I do want to say, like, one of the hardest things uh, for me was when, uh, with the sex charge, and uh being on a sex offender registry i spent 17 years there they the funny thing was they dropped the charge they dismissed it but they had already put me on this sex offender registry so i stayed there man let me tell you you can get dogged and dogged for something like that because when somebody finds your name doesn't matter what you did or what the circumstances were or if you were going in for help or therapy or whatever they go after you like you know you were going after their infant child and uh That was tough, but you know, I learned a lot of compassion out of that because I learned that not all people are bad. And when I really started looking, here's what I find with everybody that I've seen in this program is, you know, there's a lot of self-hatred that we've gotten and hate ourselves for failures and whatever. But when I really look, I find that most of us have done the best we can at the time. That was the best we had to work with. And that's sad, but that's true and that when I spend time with people, you know, they can find a little deeper who, who they are and lose some of the trauma and PTSD they got going on, that man, we have some greatness here. You know, I, I encourage people, do not sell yourself out. Do not go for that half measure. Honesty is, honesty is not a half measure. It, it shouldn't even be a consideration. But, you know, unfortunately it is. When we come in, we're so afraid that, that when we, you know, really come clean and lay it all out, that they're either going to execute us or surely not going to be anybody friendly to us. But the thing is, you know, when we clean things up with the help of a sponsor, and, you know, I, I want to be very emphatic about that. When we come through and we do these steps with the help of a sponsor, we can do it in a way that makes our life better than it's ever been. I have a life, you know, I don't want to be anybody else. I don't even want to be like anybody else. I like being me, you know? I found this niche that nobody else can fill, you know? All right. <laughs> I'm the best Darshan me that I know. And, uh, and when I work with people, I don't want them to be like me. I want them to be like you, be like them. I want you to be yourself. Let's just find out who you are. Um, because I've never met anybody who didn't have an absolutely unique and perfect heart that's able to contribute when we can get past this the stuff that's in our way. You know, uh, getting past these things. I mean, alcohol really is a control issue, um, you know, that... That's what we use to try and get a handle on things and whatever, and facing up to that ultimate thing that we were powerless. Powerless, man, that's real personal. You know, it takes us down that there's nothing that we're going to do is going to pull this thing off. And we try and sell ourselves on stuff, but it just doesn't work. Eventually, eventually, we get to this point to where we see that we're powerless. And, you know, in those first few steps, and that our lives have become unmanageable. One of my sponsors and friends said, you know, all your problems are going to originate in the last half of that first step. I mean, outside of drinking, whatever. But there's truth to that is back when I think I've got a grip on it, or I know better. You know, uh, whenever I'm chasing that preference that I know better, I know better shouldn't be this way. I'm saying that God's some kind of jerk who doesn't know what's going on. And I know better what should. And that's pretty arrogant. But when I look at it, if I'm willing to just let on that maybe I don't have a grip on everything, maybe I don't have it all, then there's hope. Uh, my sponsor, when he first had me look at the second step, you know, came to believe that the power greater than myself could restore to sanity. And I said to him, well, I don't know if I can believe in God. I don't know if I can do that. You know my history. So you know why I said that. And then what he said is, what? What are you talking about? There's nothing about God in that second step. And uh, I looked at it. He said, that's came to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. And I was looking at that like, greater than myself. He says, yeah. He said, it boils down to this. He said, that there just might be an answer that you couldn't come up with that might work for you. That's what the second step is. Just open into the fact that there might be something that would work for you that you couldn't come up with yourself. Even so, it took me weeks, weeks of pondering that. You know, I couldn't see it, couldn't see it. I would know the truth. I would know what's real, whatever. And then one day it hit me like, God, there there could be something. There could be something that would work. And the amazing thing is that was the crap that blew open the dam. It was like if there was one thing that might work, there was billions of things that could work. And when that happened, I realized that, oh, my God, you know, who knows? And that was such a profound gift because it broke it open. You know, I went nuts, kind of uh, became a religious fanatic. I was going through the steps, doing the best I could. And, uh, you know, excuse me a second. All right. Oh, okay. They're coaching me on time. Um, Anyways, I started going through the steps and, uh, you know, things started to work out. And Man, it was was profound. You know, when I got past all the religious stuff, when I came back in that second time uh, into AA and the real one from June 16th, you know, I didn't need to have a face on God. I didn't need any particular religiosity. All I needed to know was there's something greater. And when I opened to that, it works. And it still works to this day. And I don't feel any separation from God today. That's a rare thing. So I don't have a separate God that I pray to. All I got to do is be quiet. And there's a connectedness that runs that through everything for me. And that works. Uh, I went through the steps. I did the the inventory, the fearless and searching moral inventory. Fortunately, my sponsor relayed that uh, this fearless inventory doesn't mean you aren't going to have any fear. It just means your inventory is not going to be affected by it. You're going to put down the truth. You might be scared to death, but you know, you're going to put it down. You're going to tell the truth about it. And then talking about the exact nature of my wrongs. The exact nature is, you know, just what happened without the justification story. I was just this. I was just that that stuff's out the exact nature and my gosh it was you know it's scary and whatever and putting those things out then i found out that there's a lot of stuff there uh, most of the stuff that i've experienced has been experienced by the people around me when i got to you know uh the sixth and seventh which is mostly a heart adjustment you know, I came out into the A step, which is made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The biggest words in there are all and all, you know, all persons we had harmed. And because you know what, working it in the big book, it didn't come out that way. You know, uh, if you remember, it says, we made a list of all persons of harm. We made it when we made our four step. Uh-uh. No, we didn't, you know, we made a list of, Uh, people, institutions, and principles with which I'm angry, you know, fears, and sex, and, you know, nothing in there about every person I shafted, screwed over, and whatever, and felt good about, didn't have any resentments, we're good now, you know, so those people that I had harmed, that I had run over, and hurt, and abused, and there was a long list of them, uh, they weren't on there, so when I made that A-step and it said all, I started dragging them out, man. And that's where the ones showed up where I had skipped on rents. I I never had a resentment for somebody whose rent I skipped on, you know, but when I got clean about who I had harmed, they showed up. And so then when I went into the ninth step, man, I had this big ass ninth step and thousands and thousands of dollars, federal crimes, you know, I'd done some robberies and stuff. Uh, and so, I'm Faced with this stuff, but it, you know, thoroughness and honesty. It took one thing at a time. Uh, I did it with the help of a sponsor, and that's really good. And and you know, it's good to get coaching because I gotta see when when what I'm gonna do is gonna damage somebody or hurt somebody else. One time I was involved with a robbery, uh, where it was it was small uh, enough to where I could make it clean, and I had a partner in it. But but he was now married and had a little kid. And, and was just struggling to make things way. And I was to drug him into it and then haul him off to jail. His wife and kid wouldn't have anything. And he was already doing better and trying to do good. So I just took the shot myself, stepped up and took the heat on that and paid off the whole thing, whatever. And that's one of those, except when to do so, injure them or others. I didn't need to throw his name out there. Um, you know, there were things uh, that when I cleared him up, there was uh, sometimes with uh, some of the sex stuff and whatever, I couldn't go back to old girlfriends or, or anything like that to patch those things up. All I could do is hold them in my heart. If, what I did find out though, is if there's anything that's really necessary, the universe will find a way to, to, to heal that, to make that, I mean, to bring that together so we can make those amends if we need to. Uh, one time I had gone over and I had gone to London and this is when I was first sober and I went through an arrogant streak and uh, this really nice English guy had invited me to stay at his place. And he gave me a, this big closet, almost like a bedroom, said you can stay here while you're in London. And then one day he's talking about his religion and it was very close to my parents' religion. So I started dogging on him and I got mean. And this guy only had a, like a month or two in the program and I had a whopping two years or something. So he threw me out in the middle of the rain in London in the middle of the night. And so I took off and, you know, went down into the tube and got off the streets and whatever. But as it went on, I just really started to grieve my heart that I had leaned on a guy with just a few months of the program and made him, you know, uncomfortable and feel bad and maybe his religion was wrong. And it broke my heart. And I didn't know his last name or anything. 1980, a year or so later, I'm on a riverboat coming up the Mississippi River out of New Orleans. There is the international 1980 AA conferences is in New Orleans and it's crazy. And so I'm going up the river this, and we see another riverboat coming the other direction. So, oh man, I gotta get a picture of this. This is straight out of the you know, 1800s. So I go running up to the bow of the boat with my camera. I come running around the bottom. This other guy runs right into me, bam! Both our cameras hit the floor, we're jumping, oh my God. And then we're apologizing to each other, and I look up at John, and he goes, Rick, which was my name those days. And we just stood there, and, I, and then all of a sudden I said, I'm so sorry and whatever. And it was a guy from London. He, oh, I'm, I'm sorry too. I threw you out in the rain. and What did I do to a fellow guy in a we We're just crying and hugging. You know, the grace that we find is inexplicable. You know, I'd like to tell you that, you know, about the little coincidences when you think about somebody and then you run into them and whatever, man, those things are continuous. Our whole life is interwoven. Life is a tapestry woven of one thread. And man, when we find each other and whatever, everything is is coming together. You know, the best thing I learned to do in life was was in a they taught me to be quiet, just be quiet, pay attention, listen. You know. Uh, And that was a wonderful thing. I didn't need to think it out or have the answer or plan it. All I had to do is be quiet. And then all the in stuff came my way. Inspiration, intuition, insight, you know, all those wonderful things that clue me in as to what's going on in life. And what a wonderful thing it is. Even this whole disease thing I'm looking at going around the country, it's like, bam, and what I'm seeing coming out of people is we're waking up where we're seeing that we aren't as tough or as cool as we think we are, uh, nor as impervious. I see a lot of badasses not sure who to swing at, you know, <laughs> scared to death, you know, and uh, by God, I don't, I don't have any fear, you know, I don't fear, afraid of dying. I'm 70 years old, you know, uh, I, I would have probably never made 30, but. I've been living this gifted life. I have good, good things. You gave that to me, and you continue to give that to me. You know, I have gone through things in the last year where big chunks of old stuff have fallen away that I never saw through before. And then all of a sudden, I have this gift, you know, and I see something for the first time. And I'll tell you, it's all beautiful. Everything that I see without being tainted by some thinking turns out to be really beautiful you know, and the coaching in our book is, is incredible. You know, you have always had my back and I want to thank you for that. Um, I can't tell you what it's like, you know, a sponsor once told me, he said, uh, we're not going to carry the ball for you. He said, we're going to cover your back while you face the bear that I understand, you know, and I'm willing to do that. Uh, But there's something that's so wonderful about having somebody who's honest enough with me to let me know when, you know, that hurt or that was off track or, man, are you really looking at that? You know, is this what you really want here? These questions are great because we need to find out who we are. You know, I don't want you to be anybody but you. I don't want you to be like Oh, some of the old timers in the old days, you know. I don't want you to be like Clancy or Chuck C. I don't want you to be like Joe or Charlie. I want you, I don't even want you to be like Bill W. I want you to be like you, you know, you're a gem. The other day I I had the privilege of going back to Colorado Springs and I was coming through and they had an AA meeting there. So I went into this young people's AA meeting and by God, it's one that I started in 1977. So I'm sitting there and still going. And this room, all of a sudden, I realized almost everybody in that room is younger than that meeting. <laughs> so blew me away. And you know what was great? They weren't there like puppets of some old people, like guys my age. They were the young people serving, participating in the meeting, meeting the newcomers, introducing them around and stuff. I couldn't have been prouder because they were finding themselves and they're moving on. That's what we... That's what we want, we want to give each other the opportunity to find who we are because we're here to contribute. And as soon as we get this out of the way and, and the alcohol out of the way, we can start doing that. So thank you uh, for letting me share tonight. Thank you for helping me to stay sober. I love you guys a lot. And uh, thanks, Kelly, for dragging me into this thing.